We're currently going through the book of Romans, uh, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. It's the longest letter in the New Testament. Um, if you have a Bible, you can flick open to Romans. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, you can put your hand up and we'll bring a Bible to you. If you don't have a Bible at home and you need one, you can take that Bible home with you. Uh, that's our gift to you. The best gift we could ever give you is God's Word. Well, last week we began our long series on Romans. We looked at verses 1 through 4. Today we're going to continue and we're going to explain verses 5 through 7. If you'd like a title for the message, it's called The Reason. The Reason. And I'm going to read for context uh, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1 of Romans. So would you read along with me? Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, may you bless the reading and the preaching and the applying of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have seen the ad that plays on mainstream television by Telstra, Australia is why. Uh, the first time I saw that ad, I was really confused because it just doesn't really make sense. But the more I saw the ad and thought about the ad, you, you, you kind of get the story. Uh, the story begins with a, a bearded Telstra technician who is camping out in the, in the outback. Uh, and it, it journals his story of traveling around all of you know, rural Australia to work on the Telstra Towers. And the kind of the point of the ad is to say, why does this guy bother doing this? Why does he go to such great lengths? Why do we do this as a company uh, to put up these towers? And it has a, cut a whole bunch with, you know, strings and everything to pull on your heart strings. We, we cut to a mother holding her newborn. Uh, the baby yawns, the mum starts to cry. And it says, he is why. Cuts to a burnt out landscape and a wind farm, presumably something to do with climate this is why. Cuts to a young woman in a traditional dress with a, a young man. They're about to get married. The family of the groom, they all get together and it says, love is why. Cut to a phone box on a suburban street. A mom and her son are in the phone box, one of those Telstra boxes with the orange lid. There's bushfire smoke in the background. And the text says, well, she says, Dad, it's me. We got out. And the text says, that one call is why. 
You cut to a, a moving ambulance during a medical emergency. A paramedic wearing headphones urgently reports to the ambulance driver, no beds at St. Michael's, get to the Royal. And the text says, every second is why. And then to make it a bit more light toward the end, you have a teacher teaching a classroom remotely uh, using a video screen and it says, class 4B is why. And then right at the end, it ends with, Australia is why. Why does this technician go to such great lengths? Why do Telstra do such hard work? Well, Australia is why. And I can almost guarantee you that the advertising firm that put together that little film um, had just finished reading Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. It's a business management book which basically says the most important thing about a business, the most important thing for humans is that we understand why we're doing what we do. Uh, he goes on, he begins by saying most humans and companies know what they do from day to day. You know, Telstra, they build towers so you can have internet or you can make a phone call. Uh, you have your job doing whatever you do as a teacher, as a lawyer, as a, as a banker, as a, you know, a full-time mom or a, a retiree. You know what you do. Most people then, and good companies can explain how they do it, and, and that's how you become you know, a specialist company, is you can explain how you do it and what, uh, the way that you do it is better than other people. But when companies and even humans get to the why, it always gets a bit more fuzzy. And only the great companies, he says, can clearly articulate why they do what they do. And I think this can be true for our own lives and perhaps it's true for your life. You know what you do, you know how you get about doing it, but it's so easy to lose the why. Why do you bother doing it day in and day out? And then even more deeply, it can be the same with our, our Christian life. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know what to do. Unless you became a Christian during communion, uh, you, you know what you're meant to do as a Christian. You even know how to do it. Okay, yeah, we, we go to church, we read, we pray, we ask for God's help. But why do we do all that we do? Why do we bother? What's the point of it all? And I'm sure we could come up with various answers to this. But unless you've clearly had it explained from Scripture, the ultimate reason for your existence and the existence of the church, you might be blind. And in some ways, this sermon might be one of the most important sermons you will ever hear in your life. Because in this text, in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul will explain the very reason for everything, which you and I and our church and all of our lives and all the world and all the cosmos is caught up into. This is our why. And so in one short verse, we will have the reason for existence opened up to you and I. Are you ready? <laughs> We're going to just have a few points this morning as we study verse 5 to 7 to see what this reason is. We're going to see the purpose of the gospel, the goal of the gospel, and the grace of the gospel. So let's look at point number one, the purpose of the gospel. Point number one, the purpose 
of the gospel. You would have seen in our reading in verses 1 to 4 that Paul gives an overview of the man and the message we saw last week. We see who Paul is, that he's called by God, he's a servant of Jesus Christ, and he's set apart for the gospel. That means his reason for existence, the reason why God saved him, was to be an apostle to the nations to preach the gospel. Then in verses 2 to 4, he breaks from telling us about him, who he is and what he does to give us an explanation of the gospel. You saw it in verses 2 through 4. The gospel was promised. It's according to the Scriptures. It's about Jesus concerning God's Son. And it's about King Jesus, that he came in the flesh, but then he was resurrected and declared to be Son of God in power. So Jesus is Christ, the promised one, our Lord, the King. So Paul wants us to know who he is and his gospel as he writes to these Roman Christians that he's never met. But then in verse 5, he wants to show us the grand purpose for his life. He goes back to explaining his life, but it's not just Paul's life that's caught up in these verses. It's our life and your life and our church's life and the life of the entire world. Let's look at verse 5 again and study it. So, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 4, through whom, that's through Jesus, we, he's speaking plurally, but he actually just means I, have received grace and apostleship to, to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. What's Paul's job? Well, he's received a gracious apostleship. He hasn't appointed himself an apostle. He's been made an apostle by the grace of God we saw last week in a miraculous conversion. And he's been given a job to do three things, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of his name, for the name of Jesus. Now, these verses are crucial to Romans and to our life, and they're so crucial that Paul repeats them right at the end of the letter. The last three verses of Romans 16 actually say almost the exact same thing. So flick in your Bible right to the end of Romans, uh, and it's not the only time he uses a very, very similar expression, but we'll show you this one. Romans 16, 25 to 27, the end of the gospel. So the beginning and the end, or the end of Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, see the, according to the revelation of the mystery, see that again, that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations, we see it, according to the command of eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So what does it all mean? Well, in the original, in the Greek, the, the word order goes obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of his name. So I'm just going to, in this first point, look at those first two points to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations. I'm going to tackle with the among all nations first because that's the easy bit. 
Uh, when Paul says he, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations, uh, basically what he's saying is that his job in particular was to take the gospel not just to Jews, but to Gentiles also, to those who religiously were not Jewish, ethnically were not Jewish. He's not talking about nation states, but about ethnic groups. Um, he's actually going off the Great Commission. If you remember, Jesus Christ said to the disciples before he ascended into heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, we don't like colonialism or imperialism. We don't like the idea of nations imposing their worldview or their system on other people or other cultures. But at the heart of the gospel and at the heart of Jesus' call for Paul and for every Christian is Christian imperialism. Jesus Christ is king and his name needs to be known among all people groups. We're not promoting political doctrine or political ideas but the message of King Jesus. Every culture in the world needs to be disrupted by the message of the gospel. We can sometimes think, oh no, we don't want to, you know, imagine if we found some tribe that had never been influenced by Western culture, or never, you know, had white people come to it. Our instinct would be like, oh, don't go and let them stay and let's study and see what it's like. But that's not Jesus' aim. Jesus' aim is among all ethnic groups, they will hear the gospel and become disciples of him. Indeed, this has been the plan of God since the creation of the world, that all peoples of all tongue and all tribe will worship one God himself. Psalm 96 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Why? For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all small g gods. And then, verse 5, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. All nations need Jesus. Because any other form of worship, any other religion, according to what the Bible teaches us, is worthless. It's a distortion of the truth. It will not lead to eternal life. It does not connect you to the actual creator of everything. And so Paul's calling is to go and our calling is to follow into all nations. And here we are in Parramatta, where all nations live. And the gospel has reached us. But what does God want Paul to do among the nations? Well, that takes us back to that first phrase, the obedience of faith. Look at verse 5 again. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, what does that mean? It's a bit of a strange expression. It's not what we would expect. Wouldn't we expect to say something more like to bring about faith? among all the nations, to bring about belief in Jesus Christ among all the nations. But that's not what Paul says. He doesn't just say so that all nations will obey or so that all nations will believe, but to bring about the obedience of faith. And if 
this phrase is central to the book of Romans and this, this idea is central to the life of Paul. And if it's essential to your and my life, we need to understand what that little phrase means. There's two major options when you put it together because in the Greek, it's two words. And the second word, um, obedience of faith, the faith word is a genitive, which I won't go into details because I don't know the details. But basically, there's like nine different ways you could translate it. Boil it down. There's two most likely, and I'll explain those two, and then I'll tell you what I think it means. So firstly, it could mean this, obedience which consists of faith. That is obedience which is faith. That is, it's not an emotional obedience, but an actual trusting in Jesus type of obedience. So go among all the nations so that everyone will have faith in Jesus. Uh, they'll obey the gospel and have faith in Jesus. Now, it's possible that that's what Paul means. But if he just meant believe in Jesus, then he probably could have just said believe in Jesus and not use the obedience word. So then that leads to the second major way of translating it, which is obedience that flows from faith. So the obedience of faith means it's obedience which flows from faith. So faith comes first and obedience follows. So Paul's job is to get people to believe in Jesus and then obey him. It's a subsequence. So faith comes first and then obedience. But again, if Paul wanted to say that, he could have just said that. Uh, and the problem with that view is that in some ways, faith gets swallowed up then just by obedience. Obedience becomes central. So which is it? Well, I, I think it's actually both. I think Paul uses this strange phrase here to be a bit enigmatic and to say both things at the same time. What does that mean? Well, he uses two words for a reason to basically say the obedience of faith is faith's obedience or believing obedience. What that means is that faith involves obedience at first, Jesus Christ is Lord, and it results in ongoing obedience because Jesus Christ is Lord. Faith and obedience are to go together. It's a believing faith, uh, obedience. It's a faith results in obedience. They, they're the same idea. Well, not the same idea. They're two separate ideas rather, but they must stay together. It's like thunder and lightning. Um, in a thunderstorm, if you see lightning, you know what's coming. Thunder. So faith and obedience. Paul's job is to go amongst all the nations, proclaim Jesus Christ, so that people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means obedience. Because the gospel, the gospel is, is not like a worldview or like a conceptual idea that you believe in. Like it's not an idea. The gospel is news. It's a message and it's objective fact that God came from heaven down to earth, lived as a man, died on a cross and rose again. Do you trust that that actually happened? And it's not only just do you trust that it happened, will you follow him? Will you believe in him? Will you live your whole life for him. Jesus Christ is Lord. That means Jesus Christ is King. Therefore, to become a Christian is not to believe in Jesus like you believe in Santa or don't, but to obey Jesus and have him as your King. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, only he who believes is obedient and only he who is obedient believes. 
Christopher Ash said, the obedience of faith means bowing the knee in trusting submission to Jesus the Lord, both at the start and all through the Christian life. Paul, when he preached in Athens, said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Christianity is something you obey, not just believe. You obey the command to repent. All the earth has standing over it a command from Jesus Christ to repent and believe. It's not like you can just add on Christianity if you feel like it, if you think it's going to benefit you. No, no. Jesus is king. And the obedience of faith means you obey the call to repent and make him your king and come under his rulership. But Christopher Ash also says in his commentary, ongoing faith means ongoing obedience. So the obedience of faith doesn't just end in, okay, Jesus, you're my Lord. Now I go and live however I want. No, it results in a completely changed life because Jesus Christ is Lord. If Jesus, the Son of God, is your King, then you keep reporting to Him for duty. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? How, you know, exactly how should I do my life? You see how Paul talks about this um, in two different places. He, he says in Romans 1.8, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And Romans 16.19, your obedience is known to all. So faith and obedience go together. You're known for who you believe in and you're known for how you live it out. So think of it like this, if you want more of an illustrative way of thinking. Think of an ancient kingdom and there's the king's castle, there's a, a big wall um, that surrounds the perimeter of the entire kingdom of this king. And all those who live within the kingdom are subject to the king. They report to duty. They're slaves, but they love it uh, because the king's a good king. He's a kind king. But then outside the walls are all those who rebelled against the king. They decided we're going to cut it out on our own. We're going to live in our own way. And outside the walls of the kingdom, it's dark, it's gloomy. There's thorns and thistles and there's beasts and there's evil and uh, there's all manner of you know, wilderness and fear. And those who are outside the king's walls every day can hear a call. If you repent and come in, I will welcome you back and you can be sons of my kingdom and you will have full forgiveness of your sins. And so all those who are outside the kingdom can choose, will I obey the command or not? Do I want to trust in this king or not? And one day, one of them hears the call and decides, I'm jack of this. This is a terrible way of living. I don't like being out here. I'm cold. I'm lonely. I'm afraid. I don't know. And surely being back there would be better than being here. And trembling, they report to the gate of the king. The king sees them and says, repent and believe and I will welcome you in. They fall on their knees and they say, I'm sorry for rejecting you. You're my king. I offer my life to you in complete service. The king gowns them in a beautiful royal gown and they're welcomed in as a son and daughter of the kingdom. And then 
They don't go and walk back out into the wilderness. They stay within the bounds of the king's castle. And every day they report back to the king for their duties. Lord, how do you want me to serve you today? King, what can I do for you? Thank you for your mercy. And every day they're fed. Every day they're watered. Every day they're protected. That's what Paul's saying when he says the obedience of faith. It begins with obedience to the command to repent and believe, and it results in a life of ongoing obedience. But we mustn't mistake or make a grave error here to accidentally smuggle in our obedience as a means of our salvation. The basis of our salvation in Christ is not our obedience. Romans chapter 5 will make it clear that in Adam, all humans have disobeyed. All humans have broken God's laws. And there's only one man's obedience, which is the ground or the basis of our salvation. So Romans 5.19 says, As by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, that's us. So by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. So your obedience and my obedience is not what saves us. It's not what saves us. We are made righteous in God's sight by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. And we we mustn't get that mixed into uh, the, the water here. Another way we are to apply this idea of the obedience of the faith is when it comes to our evangelism. For those of us who are Christians, we're called to make disciples of all nations. It changes how we're to view that task to make disciples. James Boyce says in his commentary from about 30 years ago, It is true, is it not, that for the most part, the gospel is offered to people as something that, in our opinion, is good for them and will make them happy but that they are at perfect liberty to refuse. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman, we are sometimes told. He would never coerce anybody. With a framework like this, sin becomes little more than bad choices, and faith only means beginning to see the issues clearly. What is missing in this contemporary approach is the recognition that sin primarily is disobedience, and that God commands us to repent and repudiate it. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, sin is not just that which I do that is wrong and which makes me feel miserable afterwards. It's not just that which spoils my life and makes me feel miserable and unhappy. Not just that thing which gets me down and which what I would like to overcome. It is that, but it's also much more. Primarily, sin is rebellion against God. Sin is refusal to listen to the voice of God. Sin is a turning of your back upon God and doing what you think. So when the gospel is preached, it must be preached not merely as an invitation to experience life to the full or even to accept God's invitation. It must be preached as a command. This is why Paul is so concerned to stress his role as an apostle, as one called and commissioned to be God's ambassador. We are commanded to turn from our sinful disobedience to God and instead obey him by believing in and following the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. So we're not offering an alternate but equal to all the other worldviews approach. That's not Christianity. When you go and make disciples, there's a command on everyone's life to believe in Jesus Christ. They either obey it 
or they disobey it. And we need to let them know that their call is to believe in Jesus and make him their Lord. And the consequences are dire. Paul's task is to bring about the obedience of faith. Not just people that add a bit of Jesus to their otherwise busy and full lives. And this is why we as a church are passionate about applying the gospel. That is, believing what Christ has done and then looking to how does this affect every single part of our life. We present ourselves as a church to the Lord Jesus and to his word and say, help me to live exactly how you want me to live. My marriage, my family, my money, my finances, my sexuality, everything about me, my job, my work, my sport, my leisure. We submit ourselves again to the Lordship of Christ. The obedience of faith demands that all of our life be conformed to what the King wants. So, have you, if you're sitting here this morning and listening to this, have you obeyed the command to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as King? Have you submitted to His Lordship in your life? And are there any areas of your life, if you have, if you've already become a Christian, where you're not submitted to the Lordship of Christ, where He's not allowed to touch that? I don't want his influence over that part of my life. Well, that's what Paul is getting at when he says the obedience of faith. Bring you in to the Lordship of Christ and then keep you completely submitted to the Lordship of Christ in every area of your life. So I know there's a lot there, but it really does summarize what why the Bible has so many commands in it, why Paul has so many ideas about how he wants Christians to live, and we're going to see them in Romans, because it's not just about having a ticket of Jesus in your back pocket, but it's about everything, and it's actually for our good. So the purpose of the gospel, Paul says, is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. That's the reason he gets up in the morning. That's the reason he goes about his work. Uh, that's actually the reason for your life is to go amongst your friends and your family and bring about the obedience of faith, to preach Christ and see people conform to Christ. But there's actually a deeper reason, and Paul tells us that in the rest of the verse. Look at point number two, the goal of the gospel. So we saw the purpose of the gospel, now the goal to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations, that's the scope, the goal for the sake of his name. For the sake of his name. That is the name of Jesus Christ. The name doesn't just mean, you know, what you write on a form, name, Jesus, you know, occupation, Christ. Uh, the, the name represents the totality of his being. And what Paul is saying is that the, per, the, the reason for his life is that the name of Jesus Christ would be revered and known and glorified and enjoyed. He does everything for the sake of the being of Jesus. This teaches us that the gospel is not primarily for us or about us. The gospel is not primarily about you and your salvation and the benefits you get. 
what God has done in Christ is actually primarily and fundamentally about Himself. God's plan in the world is about Him. It's about His glory. It's about His renown. It's about Him being known. It's about Him being enjoyed. It's about Him being loved and adored and worshipped. And it's about Him being obeyed and submitted to. The gospel is primarily about God, not about you or I. We get caught up in it. We're the beneficiaries of it. But at the heart of what God is doing in the world is for the glory of God. He does it for the sake of His name. If you could put it in a sentence, I'd say it like this. God's grand purpose in salvation is the global glory of Jesus Christ, which is our greatest good. God's grand purpose in salvation is the global glory of Jesus Christ, which is our greatest good. This is the fundamental reason you exist. You exist for the sake of His name. This is the reason you're saved. You're saved for the sake of His name. You are a trophy to the glory of God. Fundamentally, when you think about your life, don't think, who am I? What am I meant to do? Think about who is God and what is God doing? Why do I exist? For God. Everything about you is ultimately for God. And that means we constantly need to be thinking, do I care about God or do I just care about me? If you were to assess yourself this morning, do you beat, does your heart beat for the name God? Of Jesus. Are you jealous for the name of Jesus in our city? When you think of your atheist friends, your Hindu neighbors, yes, you long for their salvation, but more than that, do you long for them to glorify Jesus Christ? Those are two different things. We can want their salvation, which means they're not going to go to hell, but that's them focused. Grander than that, God's plan for our unbelieving friends is that they would reverence Jesus Christ because He is so good and so glorious. What God is doing in the world is saving people so that those people would then bend the knee and enjoy Jesus and see Him for who He truly is. John Stott says, If therefore God desires every knee to bow to Jesus and every tongue to confess Him, so should we. We should be jealous, as Scripture sometimes puts it, for the honour of His name. Troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honour and glory which are due to it. When we think of a post-Christian Australia, it shouldn't be, oh no, we're going backwards. Oh no, we won't have privileges. Oh no, we don't have the respect we used to have. It should be, oh no, untold millions of Australians don't know Jesus and reverence Him. They have no sense of His glory. They have no understanding that He is God Himself. That's what should make us jealous, not for our standing or our perks or how we're respected, that people don't know Him. That's why you exist, 
to know him and to help others to know him. Stock continues, the highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God in verse 18, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Does that animate you? Do you want to see Jesus known and loved and reverenced in your friends' lives, in your own life, in your family's life? That's what is actually at the heart of the universe. That's why you exist. That's why Paul was sent. And we're all caught up in it. That's our why. That's how heaven will end. (laughs) You know, Revelation tells the story. And what happens in Revelation? Oh, there's untold myriads and myriads of creatures and humans. What are they doing? Bowing the knee in reverence to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah. Now, we might be wondering, well, is this good news for us? Boy, it is very, very good news for us. And that leads us to point three, the grace of the gospel. So we've seen the purpose of the gospel to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations. The goal of the gospel is for the sake of his name. Now the grace of the gospel, verse six and seven, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why God's global purpose to glorify Himself is good news for you and I is because in God's grace, He chose to make the chief way of glorifying Himself the salvation of sinners. So we're caught up in God's global plan because He wanted to glorify Jesus Christ by saving people like you and I. So this is Good news. If God didn't care about His glory, then He wouldn't have sent Jesus to purchase a people for Himself for His glory. So we're caught up in the goodness and it's all by grace. Did you see it repeated there in that little text? We are called to belong. We don't call ourselves. We don't become belonging to Jesus Christ. He does it for us. What happened first? Well, we were loved by God first and we're called to be saints just like the Romans were. And what does God do? He gives grace to us and peace. Where does it all come from? From God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God makes your salvation happen from first to last and therefore God gets all the glory. He's the great lover who loved us first. He's the great caller who called us first. He's the holy one who makes us holy. He's the gracious one who gives us grace. And he's the peaceful one who makes peace with us. And because it's all by grace, all by his work to us that we receive, he gets all the glory and we get caught up in God's cosmic purposes. Paul will go on later in the letter to explain that God is so committed to his glory that he's made salvation in no other name other than the name of Jesus Christ. And therefore, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be 
saved. He'll also tell us that our hope is to exalt and hope in the glory of God. And so when God, in Romans chapter 5, 2, when God makes his glory the great aim of the universe, that's actually for your good and our good because there's no one better than God. God is the source of all that is good. God is the source of you know, sunshine and clear water. Uh, he's the one that created our taste buds and he's the one that enables us to make things and he's the one of all wisdom and, and beauty and artistic expression. And so when God makes himself the goal, he's actually giving you the greatest gift, which is himself. If God were to give you something else apart from him, that wouldn't be loving because he'd be withholding the best thing he could ever give you, which is himself. So that's the grace of the gospel, that God, in love for his own glory, chose to magnify that glory through the salvation of wicked sinners like you and I. And therefore, through that whole process, he gets all the glory again, and we get all the joy. So rounding it all out, as humans, we need to know why we exist. We're longing for it. We can get through our days just knowing what to do and how to do it. But if you want to be in line with what's actually going on in the universe, Paul has told us the grand reason for everything. God's grand purpose in salvation is the global glory of Jesus Christ, which is our greatest good. Pursuing that end, giving up everything for that end, wasting your life for that end, is the reason you and I exist. It's the reason churches exist. That's why we live for Jesus, is for the sake of his name. And so, friends, I commend to you to get on board with your why, to not have all these other definitions of why you exist. It's given to you right here in Scripture. You exist for the sake of his name. And if there's any part of your life which isn't conformed to that, doesn't make sense in light of that, then you need to change that. Submit yourself again to your king and say to him, Lord, show me how you want me to live, every part of me. You saved me for the obedience of my faith, so show me how you want me to live. Ask people in your life, is there anything you can see in my life which isn't really for the glory of his name? Is there any tweaks I need to make so I can do it for the glory of his name? And if you do that, you'll be running in grain and in line with what God's actually doing in the universe. And therefore, you'll be going for your greatest joy and your greatest good. Let's pray. Lord, I pray and ask that you would do a miracle for myself and my friends and all those that are here. Lord, would you help our hearts to beat for the name of your Son, Jesus Christ? So often, Lord, we must confess we don't care. We are concerned with our own glory. We're concerned with other pursuits. We don't make the connection between our daily lives, our jobs, and your global glory. So Lord, would you help us by the power of your spirit to be conformed to your word so that we would live for the sake of his name? Would we parent for the sake of his name? 
Would we sing for the sake of his name? Would we give for the sake of his name? Would we work for the sake of his name? Would we have leisure for the sake of his name? Would we evangelize for the sake of his name? And Lord, would you do a thing in our midst, in our church and in our city that there would be untold number of people who are caught up in the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and can't help but fall on their knees like all creatures in heaven, declaring Jesus Christ is Lord. Give us a greater vision of who he is, that it wouldn't even be a competition in our hearts, Lord. So often, Lord, we are blind to it. Open our eyes to see his glory, and may it change everything about us. In Jesus' name, amen.